Um, It is my joy to be back in Genesis with you all once again. Uh, Today our aim will be to cover all of Genesis 9. And so as we begin, let's begin by reading the first few verses in Genesis 9, beginning in verses 1 through 7. There we read these words, Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. From the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, again, I don't know how you all celebrated New Year's, but I trust many of us in here participated in that common tradition of writing out New Year's resolutions. I don't know how you all feel about your resolutions. Hopefully, you have not blown them already by the 2nd of January. But many of us do take part in this process. Every year, we think through how we can make sure this year will be different. And most of us have pretty similar resolutions. We, we are resolved to, to eat better, Uh, to be more self-disciplined, perhaps you're resolved to read the Bible more, to pray more, whatever it is, these are good goals to come up with year in and year out. And if you're wise and planning ahead with any of these resolutions, you probably uh, do something physical to help remind you of these resolutions. Maybe you buy new running shoes or you buy a journal that you're going to record your prayers in, whatever it is, you know there's value in having that physical reminder. And with those resolutions in place and those physical reminders in place, you, like all of us, Sit back and hope that this year will be better. You will be better. You will be different. And then inevitably what happens over the course of 12 months? Oh, we typically peter out a bit. We lose sight of that resolution. We, of course, can make excuses for it. And we do all of this only to come to the end of the year and go through the same whole process over and over again. Why do we do this? There's a number of reasons why we do this. We do the same thing, namely, because we know we are not perfect. Every single person, regardless of your faith, knows that you have room for improvement. You know that life isn't as good as as you feel like it should be. The mistake we oftentimes make, however, is assuming that the solution to our problems is just a change in habit, a change in self-discipline. We assume it, it all rests on a change of circumstances. Anytime we assume this, of course, well, our and hope falls short, and we're left with the same level of disappointment as we were the year before. That process is a familiar one, and it's actually a good lead into our passage today in Genesis 9. For in Genesis 9, we find ourselves in that similar pattern. We find ourselves in a story that, that tells the story of, of a new start. Not just of a new year, but really a new world, an entire new life for Noah and for all of humanity. With that new start, we will see an incredible new sense of hope in the future. We'll see confidence in where that confidence rested. But having explored that hope, and having placed our hope in the confidence that we will explore, we see yet again Genesis 9 bring us to that same disappointing ending, just as it does every other time. 
the end goal of this, the end lesson of Genesis 9. It's not one of depression, though. It's, it's a lesson that reminds us of where change really is found. It's a helpful reminder, not just for the sake of, of our own uh, planning out the new year, but it's a necessary reminder for us as we consider our entire future, eternity included. With that being said, let me go and open this up in a word of prayer, and we'll begin exploring this new life, the hope that it brought, the confidence that it brought, but ultimately the disappointment it led to. Bow your heads in prayer with me, if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, what a joyous thing it is to come to the start of a new year, all the hope and promise that new years represent. God, we recognize that just in the, the mere turning of the calendar page, God, that we have an example of your grace, of your mercy, for we do not deserve another breath that you give us. And yet here it is, and you've given us yet another year to celebrate you, another year to strive to obey you, God, another year to be the men and women you call us to be. God, we recognize that left to our own devices, we will fail miserably in that calling. We simply do not have it in us to, to effect that change. God, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to be at work in us. We need not simply new habits, but a new heart. And so, God, as we explore Genesis 9 today, might we be humbled by that reality? But in that humility, might we not leave depressed? Might we leave with a renewed sense of hope, remembering where our confidence ultimately is found? Remembering that our greatest joy is not found in the celebration of a new year, but in a new creation, one that we still look forward to. We love you, God. We praise you. Remove all distractions from us at this time. Cause us to be entirely focused upon your word, entirely focused upon your son, who is the fulfillment of all of your promises, God. It is in his name we pray these things. Amen. As we explore Genesis 9 today, we'll be exploring that new life, that new confidence or security, and that familiar disappointment. We begin with that hope in a new life in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, those verses that we read just a few moments ago. Now, if you were paying attention as we began reading Genesis 9, as we began exploring this concept of a new life, you perhaps noticed that it begins not with something that's entirely new, that is to say, not something that's different, but something that's quite shockingly familiar to any student of Genesis. For as we enter into Genesis 9, this is the day in which the flood is officially over, God is reinstilling humanity on his habitable earth, we see that the author, Moses, uses language that he's used before. It's the language of Genesis 1. And as we look at this familiar language, we see a few familiar themes be brought up before us, themes that are incredible pictures of God's grace. We see those themes, first of all, in the way that the God is acting, the way that God continues to act as creator. If you recall back in Genesis 1, you can even turn back a few pages, you see, the story of creation began with those familiar words in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. This is the story of creation, and it all builds up, of course, that apex of creation, that is man, the one creature made in the image of God. What many of us fail to recognize, I think, is as we continue to move through Genesis, chapters 2 through 9, Moses continues to use that same imagery, 
that imagery of creation from nothing, and from that nothingness comes chaos. Out of that chaos, God brings goodness, God brings order, and in that order, he places his creature, man. That same type of language as we discussed was, was used again in the story of the flood, wasn't it? For after that good creation is made, after God places man in, as, as having dominion over it, what does mankind do? But sin, sin falls into wickedness, and in response, God brings chaos. He takes all that good order, and he, he takes it away. And he fills the world with chaos, and suddenly we have an image that is much more closely resembling that which was once formless, formless and void. That is what the flood accomplishes. At the end of that flood, after the waters cover the surface of the earth for many days, God removes the waters, and out of the waters, he brings Noah. And out of the waters, he brings the creatures of the earth. And suddenly, that which was formless and void in the flood is once again restored. And in that restored, habitable place, God places Noah. God is still the creator. God is still using the same players in this play that he's written. It's a familiar story. And in that familiar story is that same familiar language even revolving around us, humanity. For despite man's wickedness, we see here in Genesis 9 that God has still instilled upon man this unique calling. A calling that rests in man's unique value. The calling is found immediately there in chapter 9 verse 1 where God blessed Noah and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where have we heard that calling before? Well, of course we heard it back in Genesis 1, didn't we? This was the exact same calling that God gave to Adam and Eve in chapter 1 verse 28 God told, or God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The same role that was given to Adam and Eve is now repeated to Noah. That same role is, is given to Adam and Eve and given to Noah for the same reasons, because both Adam and Eve and Noah share in that unique role, that unique value, as the one creature made in the image of God. Again, we explored that back in Genesis 1. You'll remember how God made man and woman in his own image, and his own likeness. We discussed what that meant and how that separates us from all of creation. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace, but it's one of those things that many of us would presume must have fallen away with the fall, with wickedness, certainly, with the flood. But no, as we come to Genesis 9, we see that same value is still given to man. God still loves his creation, and God still views men and women as unique, as incredibly valuable. We see this made very clear in Genesis 9, as God speaks of the value of human life. So valuable it is that God says in verse 5, I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it from every man, from every man's brother, I will, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. We see then yet again, not just a familiar activity of God, but this familiar value given to every man, woman, and child. The same value that's repeated throughout the rest of Scripture in passages like James. Chapter 3, we're reminded that the reason why we cannot curse one another, or the reason why we have to be careful in how we treat one another, is because every single one of us is made uniquely in the image of God. Thus, as we enter into Genesis 9, we find ourselves in a shockingly familiar setting. We find ourselves, to a certain extent, in, in a new garden. 
where the good creator has placed man as taking dominion over all creatures, over all the earth. We have man being given a second chance. Despite his gross negligence, despite his utter wickedness, he's still given rule. He still is told you are different. You are more valuable than anything else in this creation. And you therefore are given this beautiful role that you must play, which is to be fruitful, multiply, to subdue, to take dominion, and to fill the earth with fellow image bearers. It's an incredible image to see that this new life is familiar. And yet while it is familiar, we also see there are clear differences in this garden, aren't there? All is not as, as it once was. We see a variety of examples of this already in Genesis 9. We see the slight shift that has occurred between man and beast. If you look in verse 2, God tells Noah, the fear of you, the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky. We see this, this lack of peace, this war that, that now persists between man and creation. A war, a fear, a terror that we still see on display in creation today. And sadly, we see that that fear and that terror is not limited to just the way man interacts with creatures, but we see that terror and the reality of violence persists between man. For as God gives Noah this new command, as God repeats that call to dominion, he speaks that reality of violence, that reality of murder. And so he tells them again that, that of your life I will require the blood of others, right? If, sorry, verse 5, I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's bro- brother, I will require the life of man. We see here in this new garden the reality of murder. We see in this new garden the necessity of what we would call today capital punishment. A punishment that is the result of man's sin. And punishment that speaks very loudly to the reality that we live in a world that has fallen. A world that is beautiful, yes, a world that is marked by new chances, yes, but a world that is a bit uncertain and chaotic at times. As God plants Noah and his family in this new garden then, he plants them in a place that is, in many ways, both filled with hope and anticipation, but also uncertainty. For as Noah hears this call to dominion, as Noah's sons hear this call to fill the earth, no doubt their mind continues to go back to that persisting reality of sin. What will happen if we continue to go down this path? Will God destroy us once again? Will God bring a flood yet again? Will God bring death and destruction yet again? It's a reasonable concern. And that mix of hope and intrepidation is, is something that all of us can appreciate, isn't it? Certainly, it's something that the original audience to Genesis could appreciate it. Those Hebrew people who were waiting to enter into their own promised land. People who had been brought out of the chaos of slavery in Egypt, had been brought through the wilderness, and are now about to enter into the land of Canaan, that land that would be fruitful, that land that would be filled with milk and honey, but a land that also had other people in it already. A land that would require violence, a land that would require war. Certainly those Hebrew people understood that mix of hope and intrepidation. And certainly we can echo their own experience, for this is the experience of all of us in a fallen world. It's the experience all of us have looking into a new year, isn't it? For regardless of how hopeful you are about this coming year, or the year that we're in, 
let's face it, the last couple of years has given us a lot of reasons to be a little uncertain about how things are going to go. We have no idea what life will be like in a year. That has certainly been made abundantly obvious to us these last couple years. We have no clue of, of some future pandemic. We have no clue of political situations. We have no clue what is going to happen. We really don't. And in the midst of that cluelessness, whatever hope we might have can start to wane, can start to weaken. And we, like those Hebrew people, and I think like Noah, might begin to question how much security and how much confidence a person can have in light of that sin. Incredibly, as the story moves on, we see that the God addresses that lack of security, that, that lack of confidence. For in response to the question of whether or not a flood will come yet again, we find in our second point that God offers not simply hope in a new life, but security under a new covenant. We pick that up in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. Follow along with me as I read yet again. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and of the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be sent in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again will I, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. We'll stop there. As Noah is given this new command, and as we see humanity enter into this new garden, this new habitable earth, we see God offering this language of covenants, of promises, of signs. And much like our discussion of the hope and new life that we looked at in our first point, we see yet again that this language is, is both familiar as well as slightly different. The familiarity of this language would be clear to any original reader of the text, for it's the language of God making a covenant with his people. This is the most explicit God has been in making a covenant at this point in time. But we've already seen this language of covenant earlier in Genesis, haven't we? If you recall, we saw this actually as early as Genesis 1, again. For if you read through the story of Genesis 1, you pick up on the name that is given to God throughout that story, Really a a two-part name. Time and time again in Genesis 1, we read of the Lord God. The Lord God said this, the Lord God did that. The Lord God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. If you recall, which maybe some of you do, as we look through that chapter, we discuss how those names refer to God both as being creator as well as God being a covenant-keeping God, God being a faithful God. This is the name that God is given by Moses, the author, and for good reason. For that covenant plays a significant role in the history of God's people. Not just in Genesis 1, certainly not just in Genesis 9, but throughout the rest of the story. God is a God that makes covenants with his people. He makes them famously with Abraham. We see other famous examples of these covenants. You think of the covenant he makes with David through which he promises that son 
someday the Messiah would come through David's line. Time and time again, God makes these promises and God reminds his people that the reason why they can be confident, why they can feel secure, is because it doesn't rest in their own behavior. It rests in God's faithfulness. That was the root of their security. We see that security spoken of frequently throughout the Old Testament and we see equally this language of signs, covenants and signs that God gives to his people. We'll look at the sign here in Genesis 9 in a moment, but as you read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see other signs, physical reminders of these great spiritual realities given time and time again. One of those signs that is perhaps nearest and dearest to the hearts of those Hebrew people was a sign given of the Passover lamb. It's a story many of you recall. The story of the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. God institutes the celebration of the Passover and we're given the language of this, the same sign, the same idea of promises in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 through 13. There, as God's instructing his people of how they will survive, he speaks of this necessity of sacrificing a Passover lamb. And we read the description here. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. As many of you already know, after their exodus, they are commanded to continue to celebrate the same Passover. Why? Why sacrifice the same type of land? Why go through all these rituals, these physical activities? Well, it's because those physical activities, even the the sacrificing of, of that lamb, the eating of that lamb, was to be a reminder of how God delivered them before. And so every time you as a child growing up in a Jewish household saw the Passover lamb, you would be taught what that Passover lamb represented. When you saw the blood being spilled, you would be reminded of why blood needed to be spilled. You were reminded what that blood represented to the Hebrew people as they escaped out of Egypt. It was a gracious gift given by God, and it was something God did time and time again in offering his people security and confidence. As we look specifically to this covenant, and to this sign, we see the same type of language, but again, slightly different. There are some shifts taking place here. One of the biggest shifts, one of the biggest differences here is first and foremost the, the recipients of this promise. Look there again with me. In verse 9, God says to Noah, Behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, every man and beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Here we see this remarkable covenant being made, this remarkable promise being made that's not just grace to Noah, it's not just grace to Noah's family, it's grace extended to all of creation. It's this promise that God would never again revisit this horrific flood. Regardless of the wickedness of man, regardless of how terrible things would get, and they would get very terrible, God would never again inflict the same judgment upon all of creation, and therefore God would never again snuff out all of life in the manner that he did in Genesis 6 and 7. It's an amazing gift, again, considering who is receiving it. 
considering what man had done to deserve that wrath. Man doesn't deserve this promise. Man deserves only wrath. That's it. As we will soon see, even Noah deserved only God's wrath. Yet God, in his infinite grace, offers this covenant. God, in his infinite grace, isn't just giving Noah a second chance. He's giving humanity a second chance, and he's promising that this one will not be snuffed out so quickly as it was before. To help Noah understand just how beautiful of a promise this is, and to help us still understand it today, God joins with this covenant, this sign, this symbol that is to be a reminder both to God, it says, but also to, of course, Noah and all humanity. And what is that unique sign given with this covenant? In verse 13, we read it. God says, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen on the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy it. When the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Having made this gloriously beautiful promise and covenant, God brings with it an equally glorious and beautiful sign. That sign being what? Well, it's a rainbow, right? A number of you kids are here. You know what a rainbow is. We all know what a rainbow is. It's something all of us as, as children draw and color in our early childhood. I think we've all seen rainbows time and time again throughout the course of our lives. And I think all of us can acknowledge that as kids, it's pretty exciting to see a rainbow, isn't it? I don't know, kids, maybe you agree with me. It's a beautiful thing to see, but as adults, does it really stir up a lot of excitement in you? Honestly. As your kid is badgering you in the back seat, saying, hey dad, hey mom, look, it's a rainbow. Do you tap the brakes and say, oh, praise God. Look at that beautiful sign. No, you probably just say, uh-huh, uh-huh, thank you, and you move on. Because rainbows, to us, are most commonplace, and I think one of the reasons why we lose sight of how beautiful it is is because we don't even appreciate the language, what we call it. It's a rainbow taken from this word bow, meaning bow and arrow. This language of warfare. It's a language of a weapon. It's a language of destruction. And what this bow originally meant then was that God was hanging up his weapon against humanity for this time. God would no longer bring destruction, but rather he was putting this weapon away, and therefore man could be confident that regardless of how stormy life gets, regardless of how dark the night is, that God's grace would eventually be seen again. It's a powerful image when you consider what the bow would typically represent. For again, that which once represented warfare now represents grace, mercy, life. As one author put it, this rainbow was ultimately a sign that God had no pleasure in destruction. That this God, unlike the gods of the ancient Near East, in no way gave way to his moods. He does not always chide. And it is a sign that tells us that if weeping may endure for a night, joy is certainly soon to follow. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful reminder of God's grace. It's a beautiful reminder of the fact that our security, our provision, our confidence always stems not from our own success, not from our own abilities, but always entirely from God's grace. 
And this was such an important reminder, again, both for that original audience as well as for us today. And think again to this original audience, these Hebrew people, who no doubt felt uncertain about their future as they head into this promised land. They needed to know this. They needed to remember that taking over that new land, being successful in that new land, did not rest in their own prowess. It did not rest in their own military might. It rested always entirely in God, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. Same thing is true for us. Our security, your security, your future, never rest in your own self-discipline. And never rest in how intelligent you are. Never rest in you making all the right decisions, all the right choices. Ultimately, your security is found and found only in God's grace. And so while rainbows maybe have have become to represent something very different in our culture today, or at best, something very childish, it ought to still be a reminder to every single one of us, every time we see it, that while life remains difficult, while storms remain certain, that God's grace is equally certain. The joy is sure to follow eventually. This was the promise God gave to Noah. And thus, yet again, we, we feel that confidence building up. Once again, we see the beauty of the story in which we have our new Eden. We have a new habitable earth. We even have a new Adam, it seems. For Noah is this righteous man, and perhaps Noah will do that which Adam failed to do so miserably. Here we have this hope that guarantees a lack of destruction, a lack of future flood. Here we have a renewed life, and with it, perhaps, here we will have the seed of Eve finally crushed the head of the serpent. Because perhaps all man needed was this new start. Right? No, of course not. No, because despite how beautiful this hope is, despite how glorious that security is that God offers us, we see in the midst of all those familiar gifts, in the midst of all that familiar grace, this story ultimately fall to the same disappointing ending. A disappointment and a familiar sin, disappointment and familiar shame, and disappointment and familiar death. We begin with that familiar fall or familiar sin. Pick the story back up in verses 18 through 21. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And talk about an anticlimactic turn in the story. Here we have Noah, this powerful man of righteousness who is picked out of everyone in all the earth because of his faith, because God was blessing him and giving him this chance. This man who had witnessed the wrath of God fall upon all creation. This man who for years preached righteousness to the world around him. This man who after the flood is given a new place to live and quickly takes on the work of the Adam that came before him. For he is tilling the ground. He is guarding the soil. He's doing exactly that which man is supposed to do. And this powerful hero in the midst of tilling the ground gets drunk off the fruit of the ground. There's really no way to pretty this up, is there? Noah gets drunk. 
so drunk that he passes out in his tent. And as we come to the end of verse 18, or verse, verse 21, our hero of the story is in the most shameful of states. Drunk and naked and exposed for all the world to see. This is not the image you want to see of a hero. This is a sad picture. A picture that just shows, regardless of how faithful Noah was, he was still fallen. He was still just as weak. And he finds himself in a weak and exposed state. And it's hard to emphasize enough just how significant that nakedness really would have seemed in that ancient world, for nakedness represented shame. To be naked in the ancient Near East, was it, or to see one's nakedness in the ancient Near East, was an extreme violation. Throughout the rest of Scripture, we see nakedness associated with guilt, associated with humiliation, associated with everything that mankind had desperately been trying to avoid ever since man saw their own nakedness in the Garden of Eden and felt deep shame. Noah has fallen into the state though it is no doubt intended to be a tremendous sense of disappointment. And that disappointment is something I think we all have experienced in this life. That is to say, all of us have had those spiritual leaders, those figures we look up to who who fall so unexpectedly into sin that seems so blatantly, obviously easy to avoid. We see it in headline news when, when the latest man or woman that we once trusted, we once loved, we once admired, turns out to not be all they were cracked up to be. They fall into a variety of sins, whether it be sexual morality or greed or deceit, whatever it is, they, they fall into these same traps. And we can no doubt spend a great deal of time here thinking about this image of Noah and thinking about how it can be seen in our culture today, but what is so truly incredible in this story is that I think it's shameful, as Noah's being, expo- uh, Noah's being um, described here, his sin is not the focus. That is to say, his sin is far from the greatest disappointment in the story. To really capture the disappointment and the exposed state of all of humanity, we have to move forward and see the responses that Noah's sons have to his shame. We see two very distinct responses here in the story, two responses that are very much alive and well today as well. We pick it back up in verse 22. Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. As Noah laid exposed in his tent, unable to help himself, his exposure comes before the eyes of his sons. And the first son is Ham. The reference is here how Ham is the father of Cain, and that will take on greater significance as the story continues. But this first son, we are told, sees his father's nakedness, and how does he respond? Does he help his father? Does he pity his father? No, all we're told is that he went and told his brothers outside. Now, there is great debate as to exactly what Ham did here. Some believe there was some physical activity involved, and there is a lot of discussion over that. 
But I believe what the text is telling us is not that there's some mysterious sin being committed, for as many of you know if you've read through Genesis, Moses is not shy when it comes to giving all the gory detail of man's sin. We do not need to read any more into the text than it's already there to see how disgraceful Ham is. All we need to know is that Ham saw his father in a state that was shameful and would have brought humiliation to him, would have been seen as a disgrace in that culture, and his response is to mock him. His response is to hurry outside the tent and let his brothers know so they can join in on the fun and mock their father and shame their father. Ham was, in essence, simply piling on Noah's shame, taking advantage of the situation, doing so in a manner that demeaned his father and perhaps in a way that he hoped would make him greater, would show him to be more powerful, more deserving. It's a sin that might seem relatively minor, but when you understand the level of respect that we are commanded to show our fathers, you see how disgraceful this is. When you understand what this could have done to Noah's reputation, you understand how disgraceful this is. It's a sin that is disgusting and such a disappointment when it's committed by Noah's own son. But it's a sin that is still so very much alive and well today, isn't it? For we live in a culture that loves to pile on when people are in a difficult situation, don't we? We love it. Our culture is thrilled when they see someone they disagree with, whom they dislike, commit any number of faux pas. When that happens, so many people in society are quick to shine the light on them and to say, aha, see, they're not as good as they'd like you to think. They revel in the sin and downfall of others. This is what so much of the news industry relies upon today. These gotcha moments. It's a pathetic act of of selfishness. A pathetic act of pride. And so tragically, it's a sin that all too many of us fall into regularly. For when you hear of, of a sin of a brother or sister, when you hear of a failure of someone else, how many of us have had that knee-jerk response of kind of smiling to ourselves thinking something along the lines of, yeah, it serves them right. How many of us are quick to maybe talk about that failure with someone else? Rather than helping the person in need, we talk about it with other people. We say, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Can you believe that? How disgraceful. And we say it with a smile. Maybe we add to it, let's pray for them, right, to make it sound spiritual. But we revel in it. We glory in it. As author, Jared Wilson, who was here not all that long ago, said, We all commit the sin of Ham whenever we hear of someone's struggle, someone's failure, and instead of figuring out how to bring grace to them, we run and tell others. We pile it on. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a culture that loves to do this, loves committing the sin of Ham. But we must understand that that is never the response of a Christian that when we see someone exposed, our response is not how shameful of them, our response is, how can I help that person? Because we know that that could be us. Regardless of how disgraceful their act would be, we know apart from the grace of God, we would be equally guilty, and we are equally guilty of a variety of other sins. And all of us understand in the midst of our own exposure, in the midst of our own shame, we would pray that someone might have the grace and compassion to maybe offer up a helping hand rather than piling on the shame and making us feel even worse for it. 
And sadly, this was not the response of Ham. But by the grace of God, it is the response of Noah's other sons. For in response to Ham's mocking their father, we read in verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father, but their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. The activity of Japheth and Shem was not extraordinary. That is to say, it did not take a great deal of effort, did it? Well, we're just told that they walk in a manner in which their father's shame is not exposed before them. They treat him in a manner that was worthy of respect. And they simply offer a gracious covering of their father's sin. And there's not an excuse of Noah's sin. This isn't to say Noah was righteous in what he did. It's simply to say this is the righteous response to it. This, I believe, is exactly the type of thing that's commanded for all believers later on in the New Testament. In passages like 1 Peter 4. As Peter commands us how we are to relate to one another, we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, this, verse 7 and 8. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment, be a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. All of us are to respond to each other in, a love, in love in a way that offers that covering. In a way that doesn't pile on shame, but in a way that helps cover it up, in a way that helps address the problem that is being committed. This is what love does. We see it in 1 Peter. We see that same language out of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that idea that love believes that which is best. And we see that on display here in the sons Japheth and Shem. And thus, we have these familiar responses to shame. Noah is exposed. Noah is vulnerable. In response, one party piles that shame on. In response, another party offers this temporary covering. And as the story moves on, we see the ultimate results of these responses and the ultimate result of sin itself. From verse 24 through 29, we read, When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him, so he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. After all that buildup, after all that glorious imagery of a new Eden, that imagery of of a new Adam, a new family, a new representative of all of humanity. After all the, the promise that a new start brought, we find ourselves at the end and yet again a very familiar place. For we see the extension of a curse, the extension of blessings, and the final result of death. The curse, of course, is given to Ham. And specifically, Noah, uh, Moses references, cursed be Canaan. This is significant because Canaan was one of the descendants of Ham. And Canaan, of course, plays a very big role when it comes to the history of Israel. For Canaan both owns the land that the Hebrew people are about to take over. And the Canaanites remain this thorn in the side of the Hebrew people's flesh. This people group was cursed, according to Noah. They fell out of the blessing that was once available to them through their father, Noah. 
But because of Ham's disgraceful, shameful act, they now find out that they are not sons of the righteous seed, but they are rather carrying on that wicked seed that we saw again in the story of Cain and Abel. That is their line. That is their lineage. They will forever be enemies of God's people And those immediate servants will have no place in the promised land. Rather, it belongs to the blessed son. In this case, the blessed sons. The curse is extended to Ham and through Ham Canaan. The blessing then is then extended specifically through Shem, but through Japheth. For Noah, looking ahead to the future, speaks to this blessed land, this place of home, this future garden. A garden that will be detailed beautifully in future chapters, a garden that will be full of milk and honey, a land where people of God will be able to thrive, will be able to multiply, will be able perhaps to finally fulfill the calling they have long been waiting to fulfill. Again, this blessing would have been a great deal to that original audience for this is what they were looking to accomplish. They were descendants of Shem. They weren't descendants of of Ham. They weren't like wicked Canaanites. No, they were the righteous people of God. And thus, as they come to the end of the story, they look ahead to their own story and they say, okay, this this is what we must do now. We must live righteously. And so Noah offers that blessing. He offers that curse. And as we come to the end, we come back again to those familiar words in which the latest hope of man's salvation, the latest hope of earth's restoration ends up dead and buried in the ground. And thus the story moves on. And as we come to that end and and consider that disappointment, it is easy to assume yet again that this story then ends in nothing but depression, nothing but dissatisfaction. But if that is our end response to this text, well, we've missed the point of what God is proclaiming here. For it again reveals that we've placed our hope in just some fallen man, which will never bring us satisfaction. Now, the the constant revelation of these stories is intended to bring us not back to man, but back to God, the Creator, the one who speaks everything into existence, the one who places man at the head of creation, the one who offers these covenants. He is the one that remains the same. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who doesn't simply offer some temporary covering of your shame, but he's the one that can bring final resolution. He's the one that can bring true salvation. He is the one that can provide a land that is eternally secure and not under the threat of the Canaanites or any given political party that you might dislike. He and he alone must be your rest. And so the question we must ask ourselves as we consider this in our own lives is where are we ultimately trying to find our rest in this? Where is your hope? Here in a moment we'll have an opportunity to to really think of this and see a physical picture of this in the act of communion. And really this is such an appropriate way to end this particular passage because in communion we have the greatest sign of all. A sign that is infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more powerful than any number of rainbows you might have ever seen in the sky. For this sign doesn't just speak to light. It doesn't simply speak to some sacrificial lamb. It speaks to the body and blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And as Jesus Christ himself instituted this last supper, this communion, he speaks of the beauty of that symbolism, of what this sign means. And Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Speaking of communion, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the greatest sign that man's ever been given. But unlike the rainbow, this is not a sign that's given for everyone. This is a peace, this is a satisfaction that is reserved for God's people and God's people alone. And so as we prepare to do this, as we reflect upon Genesis 9, unbeliever, please hear me when I tell you, you are destined to fail miserably. Regardless of how much hope you might have for this new year, regardless of how great of a plan you have to eat better, to please God more, apart from Christ, you will fail 100% of the time. And your need then is not just for new resolutions, it's not just for new context, it's not for new habits, your need is forgiveness. It's new life. And that need is only found in Jesus Christ, and Christ alone. And so I beg you, unbeliever, as we partake in communion, stay in your seats, pray to Christ for forgiveness, place your trust in him, and you too can take part in the sign. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we see this sign, as we read the text in Genesis 9, let us respond with gratitude. Let us remember that we never deserved a second chance. Let us remember that we are not saved because we are somehow more beautiful than other people, more deserving than other people, less wicked than other people. We are saved entirely by the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ. So let us be grateful for that. Let us be humbled by that. And as we take part in this sign, let us remember where our security is ultimately found. And let us remember that our sins have been covered not just in the past and present, but for all eternity. And we know this is true, not because of our own merit, but because God has guaranteed it. Let us rejoice in that fact. Let me close this in prayer. And as the band comes forward, you who have put your faith in Christ are welcome to partake in communion. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, we recognize we are all fallen, every single one of us. We've all fallen into similar shameful acts as Noah. And as we observe the shameful acts of society around us, we have all been guilty of the sin of Ham. So we pile it on. In these sins, God, our own brokenness is revealed, our own self-righteousness is revealed, and our own desperate need of a new heart is revealed. God, I pray for every single person in here today. I pray for those who have not yet placed their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that they do this now. That they do not put it off another moment. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we partake in communion as we see the sign, might it be a reminder of how gracious you have been to us. Might it be a reminder of the fact that we do not place our hope in returning to some ancient garden in Genesis, but our hope is in the, the garden that lies ahead in our future the garden that someday you will deliver us into, God, and where we will live face-to-face with you. We look forward to that day. Might we be confident of that day because of your goodness, because of your grace. Bless this time of communion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.